Back to our regularly scheduled time at 7.30 on Tuesday. Hey, everybody. I have a lot to talk about. Christians need to learn the art of something I call biblical skepticism. We'll get to that in just a moment. The Fauci emails tell us why. Plus, a Black Lives Matter leader resigns when he finds out the truth of this organization. And who is going to parent your kids? If it's not you, there are plenty of people waiting in line to do the job for you. Welcome to your favorite night of the week. This is The Deep End with Tim Hatch. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John I slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling, I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat, ah, welcome to the deep end with Tim Hatch. Welcome, welcome everybody, I am so glad to be back with you, it's been far too long since we've had any communique, and here we are on our regular time, 7.30pm Tuesday nights. This is episode 26 of season 4 of The Deep End, and I am glad that you are here. I would expect and love and appreciate that you would like and subscribe on the video below. Make sure you are subscribed to youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. Even if you are watching anywhere else, Facebook or some other channel, please hop on over. You will not miss a thing, I promise. Hop on over to youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. Every week we dive deep into culture, we dive deep into the Bible, and we talk about what matters to you. Hey, Father's Day is coming up, and I have a great idea. I, I think that you could buy him a book, and this book is built for fathers. This is the book that just came out uh, this past March. It's called Move, Entering into God's Promises for You. I wrote this book with men in mind because it's super thin. I just I just had a guy come up to me at church this past week and say, thank you for writing that book. It was so easy to read. I read it during my lunch break and it took me two weeks. And I say, yes, amen. I like to write books that matter for men. And this one matters for men. So pick it up for dad this week. Get over to Amazon, search Tim Hatch Move, and you will find yourself a copy that you can package as a gift and send over to dad. Love your father. Honor him. And give them your pastor's book. How about that? Uh, welcome in, everybody. And and this is um, probably your favorite segment of the Deep End. Let's get into it right away, shall we? Welcome to Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. I got a lot to talk about when it comes to the news. I got a lot to talk about. Because the news is like this never-ending barrage of falsehoods. Uh, and so when we get to this content, I just want to remind you of something here on Deep End News. I want to remind you of something called the art of biblical skepticism. The art of biblical skepticism is know the word so you can avoid the idiocy of the world. Know the word of God so that you can avoid the foolishness of this world. And I want to start by telling you the government is not your friend. The government is not your truth. The government should not be your parents. But for some reason, we live in a culture, we live in a time, we live in a segment of history in this country where we think it is the responsibility of the government to take care of us, to provide for us, to make our lives complete. And this is because in large part, we have turned away from biblical ideals and we have turned to the government for support and structure and all that kind of stuff that we so desperately need from family, from parents, from mom and dad. Uh, and we're kind of absent this sense of um, shared community values around the things that ultimately matter, like love and, and family and community. And so people are more confused than ever about where to turn. And let me just tell you, the government's always going to be there to say, hey, here we are to take care of you. One of my favorite presidents, one of my favorite presidents once said these words. He said, the nine most terrifying words of the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yes, yes, I am talking about Ronnie. Ronnie, the greatest president of my lifetime. Ronald Reagan, Reagan famously said those words. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. 
and I can't agree more. And here's why, because you got to understand something about the government. The government is entirely too fickle. People will run for office saying one thing and then they will get into office and say something completely different. Have you ever noticed that? Very few politicians who have eventually become our, our heads of state actually do and believe what they run on. They pander to uh, their base, they pander to the extremes of the country, either the left or the right, and then they get into office and they forget what they, what they ran on. And so here's why I don't like to trust the government, because the government is made up of people. You say, well, do you, just, do you trust the private sector? No, it's, it's made up of people. It's biblical skepticism. I hold everything skeptical to in, in, in the light of Scripture, what the Scripture reveal. And so you have a government um, that says one thing and, and means another. For instance, Vice President Kamala Harris, when she was running for president, infamously said these words about the immigration problem, the illegal immigration problem. Here's what she said. Who we are morally and who we say we are to the world. We have always presented ourselves as being a nation of strength with strong arms that when people are fleeing harm, we will embrace them. Okay, that's a really great point. Wow, how compassionate. Yes, when people are fleeing from Central American countries to come to our country for a better life, where they're seeking asylum, where they need to get out of their conditions and get into America, whether they're illegal or whether they're not, whether they're doing it illegally or legally, in her opinion, it didn't matter. We have strong arms as a country and we should welcome them. That was her view while she was running for president. And then this happened. She became vice president. And this is what she said recently in Guatemala. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. Do not come. So when, when they run for office, they say one thing. And when they get in office, they say the exact opposite. And that's why I believe. I believe and I still stand by it. As good old Ronnie said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Now, you know, I had to cover this on the deep end. You know why? Because I have to talk about something that you have probably heard about. You probably don't know what to think about it and uh, maybe you haven't even done your own research about it and I don't expect you to that's what I'm here for uh, we got to talk about Fauci's emails because Fauci is uh, a 50 I think 50 plus year long government employee and he exemplifies the fickleness the fickle nature of government and its truth and here on the deep end news we are about exposing the lies of the age through biblical Skepticism. I, I really never liked Fauci. I really had a problem with him from day one. And I just, we've already covered about the whole masks thing. Masks are not theater. And uh, how oftentimes he has been caught flip-flopping and waffling on, on major policies that have affected our lives for these past 18 months. And we need to expose it so that we can learn from this disaster. Uh, there is a great amount of content in Fauci's emails that have proved that he was the waffler in chief that we expected him to be or we thought him to be because of the Freedom of Information Act. We have access to government employees emails and they are of public record. And this is one example. Uh, actually, no, I have three examples of how this man has flip flopped the facts and manipulated information since the start of the pandemic. For instance, and I've got the pictures of the emails ready for you here on the deep end. February 2020, someone writing to him, thanking him for sharing the fact that he pointed out that the 
the structure, the biological structure, the genome structure of the virus seems to suggest it was engineered. You can see that right here uh, in the bottom of the first paragraph. And Fauci responds, this just came out today, or I mean, they're responding to Fauci saying, this just came out today. You may have seen it. If it's not, if it, if not, it is of interest to the current discussion. So there was a belief in Dr. Fauci that the pandemic was started by a laboratory experiment in China. Then for the next 12 months, he told us no. Uh, or this next one, in April of 2020, at the height of the pandemic, he said he believed that mask wearing should be voluntary. I want to put that one up on the screen for you as well. Mask wearing, he said to a guy named Ray, I would keep the policy voluntary. This is in April of 2020. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um... He would encourage employees of university hospitals to wear them, but not the average person. Then the presidential election came around and he was 100% on board with one side of the mask issue. Everyone must and should wear masks. Heck, two masks. Heck, three masks. And even after you're vaccinated, masks. And even after you had it and been vaccinated, masks, 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 masks. And, and, and again, he was exposed through these emails of the flip-flop nature of his uh, views and uh, prognostications over this entire ordeal. And then uh, this email that came out February 2020, when somebody was traveling overseas and asked if they should uh, get a mask and wear it while they travel, this email came back to a woman named Sylvia, February 2020, Masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people who are not infected rather than protecting uninfected people from acquiring infection. The typical mask you buy in the drugstore is not really effective in keeping out the virus, which is small enough to pass through the material. Yeah, hello, that's like science 101. I was saying that from the day that masks started. These viruses are one billionth our size and these little fabric masks are gonna keep the virus from our mouths to other mouths. He said it might, however, provide some slight benefit in keeping out gross droplets if someone coughs or sneezes on you. I do not re recommend that you wear a mask particularly since you were going to a very low-risk location. Your instincts are correct. Money is best spent on medical countermeasures such as diagnostics and vaccines. So once again, this guy has been proven to be the waffler-in-chief that he always has been. And you can dislike this and you can not appreciate me talking about this, but I want to expose to you something that I practice on a regular basis. It's called biblical skepticism. I hold everybody um, in my life and on television and in my country through a filter. The filter is the word of God. The word of God is the filter by which I interpret all data that's coming into my head. And you should do this too. You have an obligation. This has been a theme of the deep end since its inception. We've got to look critically at culture because culture does not interpret the Bible for us. The Bible interprets culture. Got that? Culture does not interpret the Bible for us. The Bible interprets culture. And you have to learn the art of interpreting your culture through the lens of scripture. Uh, so the, the 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 masks, you know, they're they're a big sham, they're a big fake, and uh, they didn't really do anything. And yesterday, I actually was at the airport wearing a mask, of course, because that's like the last place that you have to wear a mask, and it's still going on. And anyway, I saw this female pilot. She was on the tram back to the terminal with me, and I saw her on the on the tram, and she was wearing a fake mask. Do you know that these exist? Fake masks. They're like black, and they have like 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 gemstones, fake gemstones all over them, and they're really just they pass through the air, pass through. There's no there's no protection whatsoever. <laughs> there's no 
uh, inhibiting of breath. And it is a wonderful device. I wish I could wear it, but I'm a man. My wife has one. Maybe I shouldn't tell there tell the world that but anyway she does and so i saw it on the female pilot and i was like yeah good for you <laughs> stick it to the man you work for the airline and you're wearing a fake mask because that woman probably understands like you should understand that the nine most terrifying words of the english language are i'm from the government and i'm here to help yeah and we need to be skeptical of our culture i want to put it up on the screen this is the deal. We have a biblical obligation to weigh everything we hear, and we must rely on the Spirit to give us wisdom and clarity, and never ever just blindly follow the silence, science or the loudest voices. Why? Because Scripture says, do not believe every, te- every spirit, but test the spirits, 1 John 4, 1. Now, let me shift gears. Let me shift gears to another topic that is, of course, um, <laughs> not controversial. Uh, let's talk about Black Lives Matter because here's the deal. A year ago, I wrote a post on my blog at timhatchlive.com about Black Lives Matter, about how it sought to undermine the biblical family. They call it the nuclear family. We call it the biblical family. Mom, dad staying together forever in marriage and raising their children uh, through the toils and troubles and not living for themselves, but living for the sake of their family and their generational blessing that will pass on to their children. Well, anyway, um, what happened was I got vilified for this post. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. This was the picture of the post. You can go there and read it now. It was posted June 4, 2020, right in the middle of all the uh, riots and protests that were happening all across the nation. And I, I write pretty much from a biblical perspective on how to approach the uh, protests and how to approach Black Lives Matter and how to educate yourself so that the Bible is the interpretive tool of culture. So I was excoriated mostly by white female 20-somethings who really don't have a stinking clue about how the world works. Sorry, ladies in the 20s, but you don't. Neither do men in their 20s either, but they're quiet about it at least. At least they tend to be much more quiet about it. The fact of the matter is you're too young, you have no children, and you probably listen to Taylor Swift. And that automatically makes you fairly ignorant. <laughs> you need to discern. And, and that's why God gives you pastors and leaders and teachers and biblical wisdom from these men to give you guidance from the Bible. And I tell you, my, my church, I told them this last week, I tell people all the time, please correct me through, this, through the text. Please correct me through the biblical text and I will receive that correction. But if it's not through the biblical text, if you're just bringing culture to weigh in truth from their side on what God says, I'm not going to listen because the scriptures are my final authority. And you can say, well, you pick and choose, but, but I know, I know how to interpret. I've been through this for some time. I've been living on this earth for 44 years and I've, I've got some understanding on how we're supposed to interpret scripture and what we are supposed to pick and choose. Cause even Jesus taught us how to do that. God gives you pastors and leaders so that you know how to know what's true and what's not in your context. Uh, what does it say in Ephesians 4? So that we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by, by every wind of doctrine. And a lot of the wind of doctrines are not coming from the church. They're coming from the secular church, the world, such as organizations as Black Lives Matter. So news out of Black Lives Matter is that the uh, founding, uh, the founding member of the St. Paul Charter has resigned. This is from the dailymail.com. After he learned the, quote, ugly truth about the organization, claims they have, quote, little concern for rebuilding black families. His name is Rashad Turner. This is him on the, on the screen. He founded the local Black Lives Matter chapter in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2015. He released a video last week titled The Truth Revealed About Black Lives Matter. In the video, 
Turner said he eventually came to the realization that Black Lives Matter had Black Lives Matter had little concern for rebuilding black families, and that he'd learned the ugly truth. His, his video also highlighted how Black Lives Matter website once stated that it wanted to disrupt the nuclear family structure. By the way, they did take that phrase down, but they left the other stuff up that is incompatible with scriptural truth. Turner's comments about Black Lives Matter organization come less than a week after his national co-founder Patrice Kalours revealed that she was stepping down. Kalours faced criticism in recent weeks. We covered this a couple weeks ago. After it emerged that she had amassed a $3 million property portfolio despite describing herself as a trained Marxist. And so what you have here is you have the exposure of an organization. And I'm not talking about the value that black lives do in fact matter. I am not talking about that. I can 100% agree with that. But we are talking about the organization. And a lot of people and a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors said this. Well, I don't I don't agree with everything that they say, but I can partner with them about the fact that we need to fight for justice uh, for the black community. Here's the problem, guys. When a foundation or organization is rooted on bad soil, everything that comes out of it will be corrupted. You've got to realize this. And if you see the bad, now, now, now I, I, I give grace to people who don't see the bad soil. And if you don't see the founding roots, if you don't see the underlying themes and ideals that, that bind that organization together and you're ignorant of that, well, then, then I'm sure that the Lord has grace for that. Absolutely. But when it is clearly published on their website, when it is clearly part of who they are, when they, in interviews, to describe themselves as trained Marxists, when they blatantly flaunt uh, million dollar properties as they claim to be fighting for economic justice for all then you know the soil is bad and if the soil is bad the soil is bad and everything that comes out of that soil is bad and you've got to learn to find the truth and live according to what God says, not what the world says, because as I have already stated ad nauseum on this episode, the nine most terrifying words of the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So more about big government and big government and uh, the big government people on the side of the aisle that wants more government to control more of your life. Most of these people, they live in a place, a small little section of the American world, of the American geography. It's called Upper Manhattan. Upper Manhattan in New York, and a small little island in a uh, big state in uh, the United States uh, is populated by most of the people who want the government to do everything for you, to be in charge, to distribute wealth, to, you know, uh, whatever, uh, promote certain values through the public school system that are incompatible with your faith as a Christian. Now, this is not from a public school, but I'm going to share something from a, a private school in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. The school's name is the Dalton School. It, it costs $55,000 a year to send your child, K through 12, to the Dalton School in Upper East Side Manhattan. And the people who send their kids to this school are typically the people who put stuff on television, who interview people on television, who share their views on television, and typically are pro-government doing more because they're very skeptical for whatever reason of the private sector. And a video was released actually from a sex ed curriculum that was given to first graders <laughs> in this school. First graders are being shown the video and I'm gonna show you the video. So if you have kids in the room and you don't want them to see some questionable content, pause the video, ask them to leave and then come back. But I want to show you the video because this is how they are pushing. They are, they, are, they are trying to parent your children 
And the, again, this is not a public school, it's a private school, but it is a school that is populated by people who are in favor of bigger government programs running your life. So with that in mind, I want to get to I want to get to the video. Watch watch what happens. Hey, how come my penis gets big sometimes and points up in the air? That's called an erection. Sometimes I touch my penis because it feels good. Sometimes when I'm in my bath or when mom puts me to bed, I like to touch my vulva too. You have a clitoris there, Kayla, that probably feels good to touch the same way Keith's penis feels good when he touches it. But have you ever noticed that older kids and grown-ups don't touch their private parts in public? Hmm, they don't? That's right, Keith. It's okay to touch yourself and see how different body parts feel, but it's best to only do it in private. Well, if private parts are so special, why do you cover them up? Because they are private, silly. That's right, Kayla, because they are private. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> the public school system, the school system, and those who want a bigger public school system want to parent your children, to which I say giant emoji yikes. Yeah, yeah, yikes. <laughs> Um, yeah, this, this video is played to first graders in the neighborhood where TV personalities and big government proponents put their kids in school and pay $55,000 a year to do so. The, the question that we have to ask and answer is who will parent your ch children? Who will parent your kids? You've got two parents. And uh, we're going to get to the life of David in just a moment to discuss this because it's so important that we guard our children. They are the most precious possession of our lives. And they're not even really our possession. They're really God's possession. And it's not every corner. Hey, it's, it's Pride Month, right? I mean, you're getting it from every corner. Guys are going to work and getting the um, re-education seminar. Uh, women are going to work and getting the, you know, re-education uh, seminar. Uh, you're, you're, you're allowed to post whatever you want about uh, any kind of sexual deviancy out there. You can post it in your, you can put posters up in your cubicle. You can put it behind your Zoom call, all that kind of stuff. I have a guy in my work, in my, in my church who said that his work actually banned him from putting um, a Jesus sticker behind him on a zoom call they said it was offensive it wasn't even an offensive phrase it was like jesus loves you and they said you gotta take that down but pride flags are okay and all the kinds of other things that celebrate sexual morality totally fine and that brings me to burger king <laughs> burger king of all places is joining the fun friends the company that poisoned you for close to 70 years now is ready to poison your spirit and the world's children with puberty blockers and uh, therapies to teach them to be different genders. I bring you to Information Liberation. This is a article from Liberation informationliberation.com, Burger King donating to pro-child sex change group with every new chicken sandwich sold. So, again, I tell you these things so that you can know what's out there. The article reads, a Burger King under the leadership of CEO Dan Schwartz has begun donating, and check this out, 40 cents uh, for every sale of its new chicken sandwich to a radical LGBT lobby group that supports child sex changing. Child sex changing. Not, not adults. Child sex changing. They also support the drugging of children with opposite sex hormones and drag queen story hours. On June 3rd, Burger King made a cheeky tweet. 
saying it would donate up to $250,000 of the proceeds from its new premium chicken sandwich, Chiking, to the human rights campaign. The Hill reported for every hand-breaded hand uh, chicken sold, 40 cents will go to the cause. The human uh, rights campaign supports child sex changes and has a manual on the website to guide parents through drugging and maiming their adolescent children. The manual falsely says puberty blockers are reversible, even though the damage they cause can be permanent. Meanwhile, they warned that if the child uh, are drugged with puberty blockers, then physical changes such as breast development are irreversible or require surgery to undo. The HRC puts out their own drag queen story hour, targeting children with books about kids transitioning with titles such as When Adrian or Aiden Became a Brother. Um, this is what you're supporting when you buy from Burger King. And it's not just their policies that their politics that are garbage. According to BK Burger King's own nutritional facts, all their fried chicken products are fried in an unhealthy soybean oil and other uh, seed oils, which a growing body of scientific research indicates could be responsible for all manners of diseases. This is the tweet, by the way, that they put up. Uh, the Chiking says LGBTQ plus rights during Pride Month, even on Sundays. <clears throat> Now, ask yourself, why would they put even on Sundays in the tweet? Who are they targeting when they say even on Sundays? Um, yeah. Have you thought about that yet? <laughs> uh, your chicken sandwich craving can do good. We are making a donation to the Human Rights Campaign for every chicken, chicken sold. Okay. So, you know what I love about this is that Burger King has come clean. They are interested in poisoning, poisoning you body and mind. They poison your body with fatty oils and nasty food, and now they're going to poison your mind and spirit by siding with those who are pushing this agenda down the throat of our children, down the throat of our culture, down the throat of our public schools. And we have to practice what? We have to practice what I talked about already. We have to practice the art of what? Biblical, biblical skepticism. You've got to know the truth. You've got to know the truth of the words so that you can avoid the idiocy of the world. And that, my friends is what I have to say on this edition of Deep End News. And I hope you're willing to listen because you know what? The times are getting nuts and you gotta be careful about what you put in and what you don't. Hey, support the Deep End if you would down below so I can get more Chick-fil-A tomorrow. I got this for lunch today in honor of Burger King. Thank you Burger King for inspiring my lunch today. Um, yeah. Support the Deep End through those sources down there below. And follow me on Twitter if you like the content of the Deep End because I post a lot of this stuff even before and after the episodes at Tim Hatch Live. I appreciate you being here tonight. Now it's time for us to get into the Word of God. Amen. Let's get to the life of David. Who's parenting your children? Who's parenting your kids? The life of David. We are flying through his life now and getting to that really ugly section where David becomes a backstage parent, unfortunately, and to the demise of his family. He doesn't take seriously the, the call to cultivate in his children a fear of God, a love for the things of God, and and a um, desire for the truth of God. And so these children just start running amok. And when we last left off with David, we remember that he failed to step in as a parent when he saw Amnon's lust for his half-sister, and then he raped his half-sister, 
didn't do David doesn't do anything. Am Absalom harbors resentment towards Amnon. David doesn't do anything. And then um, Absalom starts to plot to kill Amnon and David doesn't do anything. And then Absalom flees to his mother's hometown and lives in exile for three years and David doesn't do anything. It's called an apathetic parent. And the issue with apathetic parenting is always the question of if you don't parent your children, who will? Who will? So the options are moms and dads who love their kids parenting their children or any number of other options, government, schools, internet, social media, video games, friends. I'm sure I've missed a few. Let me know in the comments below if you can think of any other things that are influencing our children. I'm sure there's hundreds of them out there. You've got to stay engaged as a child, as a parent. There, there's no excuse. Once you have children, by the way, your life is no longer about you at all. It really wasn't about you before. It was always about God and reflecting his glory. But now that you have kids, you have to think about the glory of God being reflected in their lives. And there's a battle going on for the souls of your children. If you deny this, they lose. If you avoid this, they lose. If you are passive about this, your kids lose. And my question to you is, who will win for the soul of your children? You've got plenty of options. They're coming, and they pour tons of money into it. Facebook and uh, YouTube and uh, Hollywood and, and the media and the culture around you is pouring tons of money. Video games, for heaven's sakes. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And they're coming for your kids. The corporations know that your kids are valuable. Do you? And I'm sure you do, but do you understand how to fight for them? And so last time we were together, we talked about this, avoiding parental apathy. And to avoid parental apathy, you've got to have a commitment to the assembly, the church. You've got to have a commitment to discerning the times. Like we just talked about, biblical skepticism of everything that you hear in the news and see on television or movies or in the culture. Number three, you got to have a self-feeding attitude. You got to feed yourself the word of God so you can teach your your kids the word of God. You have to have a giving and serving attitude. You have to have a commitment to discipleship and instruction of your children. You have to have a commitment to repentance yourself, confession of sin. And then finally, number seven, you have to have a commitment to grace and mercy. And let me just put it in words that my generation can remember. In the words of Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent juvenile delinquency. Hmm? Only you, parents, can prevent juvenile delinquency. Now, it's, 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 it's tricky because if you do not involve yourself with your children, if you do not work to rebuke, train, correct, punish, discipline your children, the world will lead them down a path of destruction that you will one day weep over. You will. I, I see it in my church. I see it with parents in my church all the time. They just see their children just constantly rebelling, constantly questioning the faith that they brought them up in. And they wonder, well, what happened? How did this go so horribly wrong so quickly? And it's really tricky and it's really hard and parenting is going to challenge you in so many ways you don't understand. Now, now here's why it's tricky because when your children are small, it's easy and it's very obvious that you need to correct their behavior. Don't touch that oven. Don't kick your sister. Um, don't pick your nose and then put it on the countertop, right? Those things are very easy. Uh, uh, fools know that those things need to be corrected and your children are small and they are more impressionable and they are far more teachable. That's why Jesus tells us to become like children and enter the kingdom of God. So we have a teachable spirit. But when they grow up, it gets difficult. And I am 
a living, breathing example of this. I know how difficult it is. I have raised now a child from birth with my wife all the way to almost 20. This end of the summer, she'll be 20. I have another child that is almost 17 in a few weeks. And then I have another child that is nine. And it is tough. And nothing will challenge you more than raising children. Thankfully, we have the failures of David to warn us. And I, I bring this up because David doesn't fail when his children are young. He fails when his children are old. Hear that again. David doesn't fail when his children are young. He fails when his children are old and things start to go horribly wrong for him in regards to his parenting because he has a hard time challenging his older children. And I wonder, and I think, and I honestly believe that there are more parents out there that have a hard time challenging their older children than their younger children. Because older children are far more difficult, they're far more opinionated, they're far more loud and obnoxious, and they, they, they fight, they fight back. And then the question becomes of how much should I still parent because after all, they're growing up. And the question, and the answer for you is that you never stop parenting your children. Um, you, 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 well, let me qualify that. You stop parenting your children when they start providing for their own livelihood, their own place to live, <laughs> and you're not co-signing it, and you're not paying for it, or you're not backing it up. You stop parenting your children when they get married and they and they have their own family in their own home, and then you become the role of advisor and guide. But until that happens, you are parenting. And hear me very clearly. I am talking to every parent with children in the house or dependent upon them. If your children are benefiting from you financially, uh, geographically, you have absolute biblical right to correct, to train, to call out their nonsense, and to engage with them about culture and the ridiculous nature of our world that they tend to believe far more easily than you. So we're going to get into the life of David here, picking up the story, 2 Samuel 14. Remember, Absalom has been exiled uh, to Gesher, the home of his mom. Uh, David has not made an attempt to reach out to him. Absalom has killed Amnon, David's second-born son. And, you know, there's a big, fat mess. Uh, David's life is a Jerry Springer episode. And so we have got to look at this uh, verse by verse to get a picture of how we should approach parenting and what David does wrong so that we can learn what to do right. Okay, Second Samuel 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew the king's heart, went out to Absalom. And Joab sent it to Koh and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Okay, Joab wants to reconcile David and Absalom. And the question is why? The question is, why does Joab want to do it? I believe that Joab is a member of the government and he wants to see the government succeed. He wants to see Absalom become the king and he wants Absalom to reign as successfully as his father David reigned. Um, and it's kind of interesting how he goes about doing this. He gets crafty. And the reason why he gets crafty is because Joab has always been crafty. He's always been shifty. You know, he, he's not a guy that, uh, he's a strong leader, but he's also a guy that kind of undermines David on a regular basis. And he will more so in the future. Remember that he killed Abner, Saul's right-hand man, when Abner was defecting to David. And so he's a guy that kills. He's a guy that kills when David doesn't say kill. And then now he's a guy that tries to reconcile Absalom and David when David and Absalom are not really 
reconciled. And so he goes about this little scheme. He gets this woman from Tekoa. By the way, Tekoa is the hometown of Amos, another prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, evidently some very wise people. Maybe he knew that that area was known for its wisdom and, and, and wise people. So he brings this woman in and she presents to him um, a, a, a narrative, a story, a fictitious story. But the problem that we see right off the bat is that David is still an apathetic parent. It requires, listen to this, it requires crafty Joab, conniving, manipulative Joab to do what David should have done himself. Parents, listen to me. If you don't do this yourself, conniving and crafty people will get between you and your children. Did you hear that? See, David should not have ignored Absalom. He should not have just let him go for three years and not talk to him. There should have been a confrontation. There should have been discipline. There should have been a call for repentance, a seeking of restoration forgiveness. But David did none of this. And so guess who steps in? Joab steps in. And the big point that I want to get to right off the bat is this. If you don't connect with your kids, the culture will. And the culture is crafting, the culture is conniving, and the culture is oftentimes in league with big government just like Joab was. Got it? Get involved, parents. You can't ignore bad behavior. You must not marginalize or ostracize uh, bad behavior in your kids' lives and think, I'm just going to hands off this. Uh, You've got to stay hands on. So let's continue. The woman comes to the throne of David, and here's what it says in verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She said, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead, and your husband has two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck down the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And she goes on, and this is not on the screen. They say, give up the man who struck the brother, then we will put him to death for the life of the brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave uh, to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so the words that have been given to this woman, remember, are from Absalom. I'm mean, not Absalom, from Joab. Now the words are in Holy Scripture as well. And so the words that she says here in verse six are very important. Look with me very closely. Here's what she says. There was no one to separate them. Uh, They quarreled and there was no one to separate them. Do you know what she's doing? She's indicting David here. She's saying, David, this is you. Your sons, and the whole narrative is pointing to David obviously and his sons, but she's saying, David, your sons were at odds and no one stepped in. You should have stepped in, but no one did. When we don't step in, parents, somebody else will. There is plenty of opportunities in this world for your kids to feel parented and feel led and feel guided by someone other than you. You've got to say something. You've got to say something. Be the person between your kids. You should be, oh, by the way, and and this this brings up another issue on how to badly parent your children. Uh, Show preferential treatment to one over another. Uh, who knows if David was not really like showing preferential treatment to Solomon or Absalom or Amnon or who knows. But here's what she says in her little prepared speech. There was no one to separate them. Parents must be peacemakers between the siblings. So parents must not and cannot ever take the sides of their children. And again, we do this well when they're young and they're all little people. We don't do this well when they're older people. And usually as children get older, parents tend to side one with another. They tend to preferentially treat one child over against another child. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Again, grown children. Parents, you've got to be Switzerland. You cannot get into this kind of, you know, us versus them mentality. You cannot feed into that mentality in your grown 
children. So anyway, she goes on. She shares the story. It touches the king because every time you need to get to David, every time you need to get through to David, you need to talk about somebody else. That's the thing about David. Because look what it says here about uh, David's response. Verse 8, the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman said, uh, on me be the guilt, my lord, and on the king, uh, uh, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now she wants to do what David should have done uh, for his son Absalom. She wants to incur the guilt, incur the guilt that her son has for killing her other son. And remember that Job put these words in her mouth because this is what Job is trying to say to David. You should, you should rectify this. You should bear the guilt. Now, by the way, that is a hint of the gospel because the gospel is that Jesus incurs the guilt to bring us back to God. Jesus is the son who was put to death and incurs the guilt of our murdering him through our sins. And he uses that murder, he uses that death to bring us back to God. There is a payment that has to be made. So there's a hint of the gospel here, but there's a deeper gospel that uh, picture of the gospel that we can get to. But I just want you to notice how willing David is to help her situation. He's like, yeah, absolutely. I got you. I got, I'll give orders concerning you. But, but here's the thing. He wasn't interested in doing this for himself. He could see the sins in others, but he could not see the sins in himself. And this is a fact for everybody. Anybody listening to me, you know this. We can easily see the family sins of others far more clearly than we can see the sins in ourselves. This is just a fact. We can, we can see how one family is broken down and dysfunctional, but then we don't see it in our own lives. And by the way, this is why the Bible is so wonderfully relevant, because the Bible is filled with jacked up families. I mean, the first family is jacked up. One brother kills another. And this is hearkening back to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel right now. Um, the, the, the next couple of families are even more jacked up. And then it gets to Abraham. And you think, oh, the Abrahamic line, that would be a blessed family. No, Abram sleeps, sleeps with his uh, wife's con uh, servant and, 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 and produces this bastard child. And then the, 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 the half-breed child hates the true son of promise. And then Isaac has problems. And then Jacob really has problems. He's got multiple wives. He's got multiple concubines. And he's got all these kids who hate each other. And they try to sell one into slavery and yada, yada, yada. On and on it goes. The Bible's filled with jacked up families. And these stories are not teaching us how to be family. Many times these stories are teaching us about how not to be family. And this is true here in this generation, in this story as well with David. We, we've got to let the Bible speak through the narratives of the mess because let's face it, parenting and children are hard. And these are stories that help us correct the things that need to be corrected. Well, anyway, we got to continue. Let's go on in the verse, uh, in the chapter, verse 12. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the King. He said, speak. Now she's going to call him on it. She says, hey, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring back his banished one home again. Now we get a picture of, the Joab, of Joab's view of this problem. See, in Joab's mind, Absalom must be restored at all costs without qualification. There, there, there must be a reunion. Again, perhaps Joab is thinking about the future of the nation. Uh, ironically, Absalom will be um, half restored here at the end of this chapter. Then he will really go off the rails and undermine his father and the kingdom. And he will attack Joab personally. And eventually Joab will kill Absalom. <laughs> so you've got this unholy union. And I bring that up to say this. This is a picture. You've got this unholy union of a child in league with a government official who eventually betrays a tr the trust of his father, turns on his father, and then attacks the, the government official and eventually gets killed by the government official. 
let me just say something. It's going to sound like overspun, but it's not. It's not. It's true. When something comes between you and your children, your children will resent you, turn against you, and then those two forces that 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 partner together with your children to come at you and undermine your authority will eventually eat each other. Will eat. Will eventually kill each other. This is not a joke. This is serious. And I think we're seeing that happen right now in our culture. I really do. I think with all the protests, with all the anti-generational lingo out there, with, 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 I like the phrase, okay, boomer. Like that's an intergenerational epithet. Like we're, we're, we're just throwing slang terms at each other because we just want to despise one another. And this, the, this stuff is the fruit of the root that something has come between parents and their grown children. And in this case, in David's case, it was Joab, one of his generals in the army, a government official, and his son, Absalom, whom he did not seek to restore. Parents, do not be apathetic. Verse 14, she says, we must all die. We are like water spilled in the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, this woman says something that is 100% right. God devises a means. God devises a means for banished ones to return home. The means are sacrifice, repentance, um, confession, restoration. These are all in the law. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Those are the means in the law. So if you want, and a case could have been made for Absalom's killing Amnon because Amnon raped his sister. Okay, there should have been capital punishment. Now, Absalom took the law into his own hands. I am sure that as king, David could have made a way for Absalom to make restitution, pay the penalty, do the time, whatever it took to make sure that he could come back into full status as a son. And that's the way that God has devised those means to establish um, reconciliation. Obviously, they all are fulfilled in Christ, who provides the sacrifice, who pays the obligation and the debt, who does the time in the grave for us, rises again to bring us back to God and justify us before the Father. That's the means by which God has, uh, those, those are the means that God has devised so that we might, the, so that we banished sons might remain, might not remain an outcast, okay? But David has done none of that. And even after this conversation with this woman, he does very little of that. And that's a problem. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Now let's continue. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my lord, the king will set me at rest. For my lord, the king is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Now watch what David does. He picks this out right away. Verse 18. The king answered the woman, do not hide anything from me, I ask you. And the woman said, sure, go ahead, speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in this? <laughs> he can sniff out Joab. He knows Joab is a conniver. And the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right or the left without, from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. David immediately sniffs out Joab's involvement. Now, what is that saying to us about parents? Listen very carefully. Parents, if you just take time to sniff it, you'll smoke out the liar in your kids' lives. Unfortunately, way too many children, um, parents, way too many parents are just playing ignorant and they aren't taking the time to prayerfully think through 
the statements of our culture and have conversations with our kids about the statements of our culture because they want to avoid. They want to avoid the conflict. I don't want them to not like me. When they were young, did you have a problem with them not liking you? Like when they were like two and they were throwing things out the car window and you were yelling at them and telling them to stop it. And then they said, no, I hate you. You're a bad mom. Did you have a problem with that? Like, like, did you have a problem not being liked at that moment? Why is it when they get older, you suddenly worry about whether they like you or not? Don't worry about that. It's more important that you speak truth to them because if you don't speak truth to them, they will eventually resent you anyway. <sighs> so David knows. He can smell Joab all over the place. And you would think that he would say, okay, now enough. Enough of Joab getting between me and my son. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to go straight to my son. You would think... You would think that David would say that. He sniffs out Joe, who has been a conniver and a manipulator, the whole story of David. But David doesn't do that. <laughs> no. No, in fact, here is exactly what David does. Verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Oy vey. David. Oh, my word. You're kidding me. Why are you letting Joab do for you what you should be doing yourself? You should be reaching out to your son. Instead, you tell Joab, the manipulator, to go reach out to him. Verse 22, and Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. Of course he did, because he's, he's being elevated into a place of parental authority over David's son. Parents don't abdicate the role of being a parent to your children. Who's going to parent your kids? And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab rose, went to Geshur, brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart. Look at this. Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So, jo so Absalom lived apart in his own house, and he did not come into the king's presence at all. He never went into the king's presence uh, and, and the scripture is going to tell us for, I think, three years or two years. We'll get there in just a moment. Well, why doesn't David do this? Why does he send Joab to do it? You know why? Because he's not parenting. He's not getting involved. He's not stepping up. He's an apathetic parent. Now we're going to turn the page of the scripture to something called Absalom's self-obsession. Absalom is all about Absalom. Parents, uh, the life of David teaches us many things. It teaches us to be bold and have faith and believe in God and believe God for great miracles like the miracle of de defeating Goliath. And it points us to Jesus and it does wonderful things for our faith. And I love the story of David, but the reality is that David's parental life teaches us a lot about the human condition that is inside all of our children. Amnon shows us that all of our children will be uh, influenced by the lust of the flesh. He lusted for his half-sister. He raped her and then he hated her. And he exposed the reality that is, that is resident in all of our children that there is going to be an attack on our children in the matter of sexual morality. That's why I am so passionate about exposing the lies of the sexually immoral among us, about, about exposing the lies of all the agenda that is going being force-fed into your kids' schools and into your kids' entertainment and into government and into the university because we've got to be aware of it. Th this stuff does not come from outside. It comes from inside the human heart. And then it just, from unbelievers, gets, gets uh, pushed on our believing children. So Amnon exposes the reality that our kids are going to be under the assault of sexual morality from within and from without. 
But Absalom, okay, Absalom presents another issue that parents cannot afford to be ignorant of, and that is the problem of self-obsession, narcissism, all about me-ism. Absalom is completely and utterly self-obsessed. And ladies and gentlemen who have parent, uh, children, so are your kids. <laughs> yes, they are. Every single one of them. The reason why is because of the human condition. Every single kid, every single kid is a human. Every single human has a God of self that they worship. And as parents, we've got to attack this. We've got to take it on with biblical truth and biblical skepticism and attack the root of that narcissism and point them to Jesus. So let's take a look at Absalom's life. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there's no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now this is a way of the Bible saying he was perfect. He was like perfectly stunning. And look at verse 26. This is hilarious. When he cut his hair, for at the end of a year, he used to cut it when it was heavy for him. He cut it. He weighed the hair of his head. Two hundred shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Okay, this you you know that you are self obsessed when you are cutting off your hair and weighing it every year. <laughs> by the way, it's an enormously poetic uh, theme in the scripture on Absalom's life that this hair, which was his beauty, which was his glory, actually becomes the thing that gets him tied up in knots, hanging from a tree, and then stabbed through by Joab. The thing that he most valued about himself became his undoing. It teaches us that self-centeredness kills. And ladies and gentlemen, parents, if you let self-centeredness live in your children, it will kill them. It will kill them. Your children will be self-centered. That's what they do because they're humans. And a biblical view of your children is essential if you're going to know how to raise godly kids. Uh, beware of praising your children with no, with no discernment. Beware of always talking up your children in public places. Beware of always being the one who has to chat about all their children's successes. Why? What are you doing? What are you trying to make up for in your own life? Like, I, I always grow weary and leery of the parent who will not shut up at the dinner party about their children. Like, they are not gods, they are not perfect, and they are not the best of everybody. You have to have discernment. Now, don't belittle your children either. Don't put them down. Don't talk nasty about them. Don't always complain about them. I had to learn that lesson this past week, actually. I said something that I shouldn't have in public, and I had to repent and say sorry to one of my children. You got to also be careful about that. But here's the deal. There is this narcissistic behavior at root in every child because every child is human. If Absalom was uh, alive today, uh, he would be a Instagram influencer. He would totally be all over that page and posting selfies of himself. Anyway, going on, verse 28. So Absalom lived full, two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Again, this is now five years, five years in total since David has seen Absalom. Three years in Geshur, two years in Jerusalem in his own house away from the king. And instead of stepping up and walking and talk, walking over and talking to Absalom, David is hands off and that's a serious problem. Let's continue. Verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. So Absalom reaches out and he reaches out to the mediator, Joab, bring me back to my parent. And Joab doesn't do it. And he sent him a second time, but Joab would not come. Now you have to wonder, why wouldn't Joab come? Why wouldn't Joab come? Because I think that Joab represents again, a, a force, a cultural force that gets between parents and children. And they really don't have a desire to see the parents and children reconcile. They just have a desire to control the children because if they can control the children, they can control the next generation. 
So verse 30, verse 30 says, Then he said to his servants, See, Job's field is in the next is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. <laughs> oh, Absalom. Absalom is the picture of the consummate, petulant, undisciplined child. He's a brat. He is a picture of a child whose father or mother will not confront him. And I can't say this strongly enough. Parents, you must be in the business of child confrontation. The older they get, the nastier the confrontation might have to be. But you cannot afford to abdicate this responsibility. You cannot afford to pretend it's not necessary. I was having a conversation with a woman in my church this past weekend whose child who used to be on missions trips with us, who used to come to every service, is now no longer interested in going to church and doesn't even have any friends and never goes out. And the reason why? Because she got caught up in all of this Black Lives Matter and social justice stuff and she decided that she hated the church and she hates white people and she hates the world. And she's all alone and she hates, and she not just she hates, but she attacks her parents, she attacks everybody that's close to her and she won't listen to anybody. And this is a petulant narcissist who has decided that the only one that's right is the person that's in her own head. And I had to tell this person, this parent, and I, I said it compassionately, but I say it and I share the story with you because this is what you have to do as a parent. You have to have the ugly conversations. And I told this person, I said, listen, this is what you got to tell your, 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 your child. Do you realize that strangers somewhere over there, thousands of miles away from us who do not know us, do not care about us, and do not have any relationship with us have come between us? Don't you understand that some social movement has become a, a, a bone of contention between a parent and their child? Like, are you going to let that continue? And then call out the organization, watch the deep end, call out the organization for all of its falsities, for all of its hypocrisy, so that you can show your child with facts. You don't have to show her the show, but you can show your child this with facts, the nonsense and the lies that are in our culture, the way that you are being corrupted by liars. Again, the art of biblical skepticism so that you can tell the truth to your, to your most precious possession on earth your children and then you say well what if they don't want to listen to me what if they just fight and argue then you fight back fight by the rules don't swear don't curse don't name names don't call names right name names don't call them names if they don't want to listen what do you do you remove financial support that's what you do you block the wi-fi you take their cell phone sheesh is it really this hard to tell you what to do when your kids don't want to listen to you if they are dependent on you you have leverage oh but if i do that they'll drive out i'll drive them away okay so you drive them away that's not you pushing them away that's them running away let them run away but then you'll be ready to receive them back when life hands them a bunch of garbage i talk to parents all the time i do and they don't do this stuff. And I know some of them think, yeah, easy for you to say, wait till your kid rebels. Well, I will be doing this if my child does this to us. My child will listen to us and follow us and believe like us if they are dependent on us. When they are on their own, they have the right to do exactly as they wish. I will not co-sign alone. I will not provide transportation or housing. I will not provide food or clothing to a child who does not want to listen to biblical wisdom from my wife and myself. Um, it's hard, but no one said it was going to be easy. And David's life is a crystal clear picture of what happens when you abdicate this responsibility. Continuing on, verse 31. Uh, then Joab went to uh, Absalom's house and he said to him, why have you, why have you set my, my, my field on fire? <laughs> and Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent you word. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go to the king, 
presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. So now you finally have these two people get together. So finally now you have this, this five-year exile of rebellious son and apathetic father, and they finally come together. And there should be, there should be confrontation. There should be calling out. There should be a call for repentance and confession and, and ref, restitution. And then ultimately reconciliation. Does that happen? The king kissed him. Oy. <laughs> This is not the way to reconcile a rebellious child. And what you have here is a failed restoration of relationship. What you have here is a half restoration. Yeah, he's in David's presence, but he doesn't know David's heart and doesn't understand David's truth. This is what a lot of people in church are. They are people who have half restored. They only come to church because they want to get in on the goodies of God. That's exactly what Absalom wants. Absalom is all about Absalom. He just wants to be in the king's presence so that he can leverage his kingly sonship and he can be an important person. He doesn't want to repent. He doesn't want to show remorse and godly sorrow. He doesn't want to turn from his sin. He doesn't want forgiveness and grace. He just wants influence. He just wants importance. He just wants to be celebrated. And that is half-hearted redemption, half-hearted reconciliation, and it is not real, and it does not last. This is the failure of David's parenting. This is the failure of David's parenting, and I want to put on the screen five points in which David failed. Number one, he was apathetic toward his parental responsibilities. He let Joab get between him and his children. And parents, if you do the same, shame on you. The government should not be between you and your children. The school system should not come between you and your children. A friend should not come between you and your children. Mm -mm, no one. Number two, he detached himself from the misbehavior of his children. He said, oh, they're going to, you know, kids will be kids. That's what a lot of parents say. Kids will be kids. No, wrong. You need to, rep you need to call it out. Number three, he required no discipline, punishment, or sense of justice. He just kind of let the kids just run wild, and he didn't do anything about it. Number four. Uh, he offered no forgiveness and grace because there was no demand for uh, repentance. There was no opportunity for forgiveness and grace. There was just, there was just a kiss. <laughs> and then number five, he was led by conniving influences of the world instead of the biblical word. He shouldn't have listened to Joab, for heaven's sakes. He should have listened to God's word about how a rebellious son was to be treated and how a rebellious son was to be um, reconciled. Now, one of, the, one of David's sons saw the error. His name was Solomon, and Solomon would grow up and write a lot of the Proverbs, and it's amazing because he writes a lot of things that you think, man, maybe he had Absalom in mind here. He writes in Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And let me just underline that line right there, is diligent. It is going to be hard work to discipline your children. Hard, hard work to discipline your children. It will never stop. It will never get easy. It actually gets harder, but the harder it gets, the more important it is. Solomon would write in Psalm, uh, Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. If <laughs> you want to kill your kids, there's a better option than killing them. There's a better option. Discipline them. And the implication here is that if you don't discipline, you will want to kill them. Yeah. Discipline them or desire to kill them. It's your choice. I would prefer discipline. Number one, discipline is legal. <laughs> Number two, it saves your son. 
It saves your son. It saves your child. Look what Proverbs 29.15 says. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. How about Proverbs 30, verse 17? The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. By the way, this proverb is a picture of our current cultural pandemic. And I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about disobedience to parents. They mock mom. They mock dad. They mock the parental of figures. They try to undermine the biblical family. And then they have their eyes plucked out by ravens. Ravens are symbols of death. This is a metaphor. A culture that scorns the aged will become blind in its time. That's what Proverbs 30 verse 17 is saying. People have no clue today what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right, what's what's moral, what's what's immoral. Because they've scorned the aged. They've scorned the, other, the older generation. And, and a lot of it is because the older generation refused to provide godly guidance. They were hands off, just like David. So God's parental guidance, number one, is whole life involvement with parental responsibilities. Again, it ends or radically changes when they get married and move out. Or they just move out. When they no longer are financially dependent upon you, Parental guidance changes dramatically. But number two, they seek to save children from mistruth and misbehavior. You are the one who says this is what culture says, but this is what God's word says. And they don't have to agree. But again, if they are dependent upon you, they will al- align with it. And they will follow you because they are your children. Number three, disciplines those he loves. This is what God does. If you love your children, you're going to discipline them. Number four, you're going to offer grace as well. Forgiveness and grace. Don't discipline with no grace. That also will, uh, uh, what the scripture says, provoke a child. It would destroy a child. You discipline, but then you offer redemption and forgiveness and grace. And then number five, you ignore worldly wisdom and you act on the truth. That's God's guidance for parents. Ignore worldly wisdom. It sounds wise, it's not. As Christian parents, we have got a job to do and it's getting harder and harder and harder because there are so many unending ceaseless voices that are speaking to our the hearts and minds of our children but because it's that hard means it's that important i bring you to hebrews chapter 6 i'm sorry verse uh, hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom the father does not discipline If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God disciplines. So must we. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Parents, the implication is if you do not discipline, you will not have respect. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. In other words, that you have as a parent an idea of what your kid should be about. If you're a Christian parent, you have an idea of what your kid should be about. Don't be ashamed of it. Speak into it. Talk to them. Confront them. Correct them. The soul of your child is at stake. And it's not about them liking you. It's about them honoring you and respecting you. I'm going to turn the page for one verse in in, uh, 2 Samuel 15. One verse. Because in David's apathy, 
in David's kind of um, laissez-faire response to all of Absalom's uh, rebellion, he actually produces a monster out of Absalom. The very next verse says in 2 Samuel 15, 1, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And he's going to flood into the streets of Jerusalem and he's going to subvert the hearts and minds of the people and turn the nation against his father. And it's going to happen quickly. No discipline, no questions about his actions, no calling him out, no confronting him. And David creates a monster. This child will turn into a juvenile delinquent and destroy himself. Because that's what kids do when they aren't disciplined and corrected. It's kind of something that's happening right now in America. What do we see with the calls to defund the police? With the calls to undermine the biblical family structure? With the mocking of the older generation? With the marginalization of Christian faith and Christian morality? What do we see right now in America? We see the younger generation undermining the wisdom and the values of the older generation. And it's because of the older generation refused to confront, correct, train, rebuke, restore, forgive, and empower in godly values. We as the church have got to stem the tide in our families, in our homes, in our lives. We, the church, have got to do what is right by our generation so that the next generation lives and thrives in the power and the promises of Almighty God. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, um, once again, support the deep end. Make sure you give us some uh, support on social media as well. Uh, that is here at deep end TV on Twitter at the deep end TV on Instagram and forward slash the deep end TV on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. Make sure you check out the new swag. Well, it's not so new anymore on uh, the Deep End uh, TV website. Yeah, the Deep End TV website. This was episode 26 of season four, and I am glad that you were here, and I hope I will see you here again next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.